What is a ghost made of? If a ghost were a real phenomenon existing in the world, it would be detectable by instruments tuned to whatever the phenomenon's nature. If it is visible to the naked eye, say in the form of a young woman dressed for a Victorian wedding, then it presumably involves the reflection of electromagnetic radiation. By that means, its trace makes a difference to the retina of the eye or the film of a camera. If it is an, invi an invisible entity, then its presence must make a difference in the material environment in order for it to be said to exist. Otherwise, what does existence mean? The ghost must be made of some substance or physical disturbance, a material ectoplasm or a local field phenomenon. In fact, as most of us understand, there is no such thing as a ghost. If there were, then a controlled experiment could be devised to demonstrate that fact. Yet it seems as though the believers in ghosts or demons, or angels, or fairies, are making a different claim, whether they realize it or not. They purport the existence of things supernatural. These supernatural things must exist in a different realm, or a different dimension, than our ordinary space and time. By some means, such things might have occasion to cross over and visit us here, in the material realm. In this spirit, Gilbert Ryle made the reasonable comparison between Cartesian dualism and the idea of natural and supernatural phenomena. He referred to this conception of consciousness as the ghost in the machine. He was responding against the notion that there is a material world and a separate interacting mental world. According to such a view, the mystery of consciousness is in the interaction with the physical realm. Ryle criticized dualism in his book, The Concept of Mind. He wrote, quote, the official doctrine, which hails chiefly from Descartes, is something like this. With the doubtful exception of idiots and infants in arms, every human being has both a body and a mind. Some would prefer to say that every human being is both a body and mind. His mind and his body are ordinarily harnessed together, but after the death of the body, his mind may continue to exist and function. Human bodies are in space and are subject to the mechanical laws which govern all other bodies in space. Bodily processes and states can be inspected by external observers, so a man's bodily life is as much a public affair as are the lives of animals and reptiles, and even as the careers of trees, crystals, and planets. But minds are not in space, nor are their object operations subject to mechanical laws. The workings of one mind are not witnessable by other observers. Its career is private. Only I can take direct cognizance of the states and processes of my own mind, a person, therefore, lives through two collateral histories, one consisting of what happens in and to his body, the other consisting of what happens in and to his mind. The first is public, the second private. The events in the first history are events in the physical world. Those in the second are events in the mental world." Unquote. What Ryle called the official doctrine has not really been the scientific framing for some time. I'm as prepared to deny the existence of a non-physical conscious entity as he is. But I fear he dumps out the whole bathtub without regard to the baby. He seems to reduce the phenomenon of consciousness out of the complete description of the universe. To the extent that he does so, he is making an error. This is why, throughout this podcast, I have insisted that we are searching for a physical explanation for consciousness. The problem is not about determining the interaction between separate realms. It is about finding consciousness within a common physical reality with everything else. With regard to the existence of ghosts, the claim would be that there are some rare and paranormal entities which can be witnessed visually or otherwise by people in their instruments. 
This, to me, puts the lie to the idea of supernatural things. If they were supernatural, then they would not be physically detectable. If ghosts exist, then they are something natural. The same applies to Ryle's ghost in the machine, or soul, right? Sure, that works to discredit things which don't exist, including Descartes' conception of a mental realm. But consciousness does exist, so it must not be a supernatural phenomenon. It must fall within the domain of the physical universe. Are we holding our breath for a new physics, or is there something ghost-like in the brain that we can detect with the physics we already have? Well, maybe there is. There is a complex and dynamic electromagnetic field structure. As Colin Hales has pointed out, a general-purpose computer running a cognitive program does not share this structure, even if the steps carried out are a perfect model of the brain's firing structure. The computer is a machine without the would-be ghost. To be sure, the computer utilizes its own engineered structure of devices, which work electromagnetically, but it's a totally different structure from what the brain has. This ghost is nothing supernatural, but it is nevertheless something extraordinary. It is a complex thing which is invisible to the eye and has all the phenomenal characteristics of a soul. It is like something to be this ghost in the machine. Indeed, it is like being a ghost trapped in a human body. But it is quite real, as we can all attest, and therefore requires an explanation. I like what Peter Godfrey Smith had to say about this in the final chapter of his book Metazoa. He said, quote, One objection that is often made to strong AI is that in these computer programs you might be able to represent a pattern of interactions of the kind seen in a brain, but that it is not the same as having those interactions be present in the computer. They are merely encoded, written down, and that is not enough. This is an important objection, and AI advocates often dismiss it too glibly. But there are some kinds of activity related to what our brains do that might be given actual existence in a computer without too much difficulty. Suppose that a brain was just a signaling and switching network, where neuron A triggers the firing of neurons B and C, neuron C affects D, E, and F, and so on, and this is all that happens. Then it may be that as long as something in a computer plays the role of A, something else plays the role of B, and so on, you have all you need. The brain's pattern of activity can be present, not merely represented in the machine. But neurons and brains do more than this. The objection that AI programs merely represent what brains do, and do not do what brains do, is much more acute for the large-scale dynamic features of brains. These two would have to be actually present in the computer. It would not be enough to work out some equations that describe what these rhythms and waves do in the brain, and run those equations in the machine. The machine has to actually have these patterns present within it." Unquote. In agreement with the author, I am beginning to think that there is an error to expect a machine containing a network of switches contrived to mimic the scheme of the thalamocortical nervous system to be sufficient for consciousness. And I don't say that because I think the conscious machine has to be biological. It doesn't. I'll repeat an important line from that passage, quote, It would not be enough to work out some equations that describe what these rhythms and waves do in the brain and run those equations in the machine. The machine has to actually have these patterns present within it, unquote. These rhythms and waves are electromagnetic, and their influences depend upon proximity. It all depends on the specific physical arrangement as it occurs in the brain. There is more to this arrangement than the sequence of action potentials propagated from one neuronal switch to the next. How much more? And how much does it matter? At this time, I don't know for sure. A computer definitely has a different arrangement. But what about this? Imagine we had all the room in the world to build a real-world biological model of the brain, 
All the room in the world means we are not constrained by the size and shape of the skull or any contingencies of human development. What this means, in the end, is that we produce the brain's precise networks using precisely the same numbers and types of neurons connected to just the right others. But instead of packing the neurons, their dendrites and axons in the pathways they follow in the native brain, we spread the whole thing out like cobwebs. Never mind blood supply and extracellular ion concentrations and the rest. We'll just lay this cobweb of network system in a gelatinous medium however we want to, floating there in a cube of nutritious, oxygenated medium like a galaxy of a trillion stars laid out in space. Axons need not be packaged into their usual tracks, and neurons need not lie next to other neurons to which they aren't directly connected. We've got this cobweb of interconnected neurons like strings of Christmas lights all tangled up. Remember, we have preserved all the connections. Hell, if we could do this, it would make studies of the connectome a lot easier. One of the difficulties is how closely everything is packed. You've probably had to work with electronic equipment at one time or another, where there are like 50 different cords and cables winding around to different plugs and connections. In fact, this is a perfect analogy for what I'm talking about. Let's imagine setting up a stage for a musical performance. Guitars are connected to amplifiers and foot pedals. There are keyboards, too, and mics for every performer and to pick up the, dr the drums, extension cords and lights and speakers and whatever else. A microphone can be moved from one part of the stage to another without disturbing any of its connections to other devices. The cord is simply dragged across the stage to a new location. Everything is spread out to make room for the performers and the technicians to do the show. In fact, you wouldn't want certain devices to be too close to one another for fear of interference. This is what I mean about a network preparation for the brain, which is spread out like cobwebs. Our real-world spread-out biological brain model, or RWSOBBM, if you prefer, as I'm sure you don't, is networked the same as the brain, but arranged differently in space. What difference should we expect this to make in terms of functional operation? Excellent question. What about the usual electromagnetic interferences? Won't those be rendered different? Many cellular processes, which would normally be close together with higher degrees of shared electromagnetic influence, now have substantially less influence in proportion to the increased distance between them. Let's try this. Let's take the whole cobweb of neural network and carefully twist it into a rope. Mind you, we aren't breaking any of the connections. Let's situate this rope in the gelatinous medium and study its operation. In this arrangement, we have brought neurons and their cellular processes into close proximity with others in a manner foreign to the normal brain. Have we not added electromagnetic interferences between neurons which were not present before? All I mean to show with this thought experiment is that the physical brain is more than the sum of its neurons and their connections. The brain's arrangement in space is critical. Let's consider the physics of the electromagnetic field. In Fundamentals, Frank Wilczek gives us a reasonable primer to work from. He writes, quote, Michael Faraday, a self-educated experimental genius of humble origins, could not follow the intricate mathematics of these complicated force laws. He thought for himself instead in imagery. He visualized that electrically and magnetically active bodies extend influence through space as a sort of aura or atmosphere, even where no other bodies are, are around to feel that influence. Today, we call these activations of space electric and magnetic fields. Faraday used more vivid language. He called them lines of force. As James Clerk Maxwell, the spectacularly gifted theorist who became Faraday's disciple and evangelist, put it, 
Faraday in his mind's eye saw lines of force traversing all space where the mathematicians saw centers of force attracting at a distance. Faraday saw a medium where they saw nothing but distance. Faraday sought the seed of the phenomenon in real action going on in the medium. Guided by his unorthodox ideas, Faraday soon discovered a remarkable effect that was difficult even to state without referring to his fields. This is his law of induction, according to which magnetic fields that change in time produce circulating electric fields. With that discovery, he revealed that fields have a life of their own, unquote. Incidentally, this is how power plants work. Some source of energy, gas or coal or a windmill, provides the energy to turn a turbine. Most of the time, this is achieved by boiling water so that steam will turn the turbine. In any case, this moves a magnet which induces an electric current to flow along a wire. Anyway, a bit further on, Wilczek continues, quote, Upon spelling out this new viewpoint mathematically, Maxwell discovered that in order to get consistent equations, he needed to supplement Faraday's law of induction with another one, in which the roles of electric and magnetic fields are reversed. According to Maxwell's law of induction, electric fields that change in time produce circulating magnetic fields. When he married the two field-based induction laws, Faraday's and his own, Maxwell discovered that they gave birth to a dramatic new effect. One could have a self-restoring, permanent traveling disturbance in electric and magnetic fields. Changing electric fields induce changing magnetic fields, induce changing electric fields, induce changing magnetic fields. These disturbances, he calculated, should travel at the speed of light, which has been measured independently. Unquote. Visible light and radio waves and microwaves and all the rest are electromagnetic disturbances in a space-filling field. The flow of ions through neuronal membranes produces a different kind of disturbance in the electromagnetic field. This collectively establishes the wave patterns detectable by EEG. If a structure of EM is what a conscious mind consists in, might that in fact be the entity we're looking for? Might we have found a ghost in the machine after all? One which is not manifest in a computer model, and one which would, would be vanquished by our spread out brain model. In the introduction I said this, if a ghost were real then it must be made of some substance or physical disturbance, a material ectoplasm, or a local field phenomenon. In fact, as most of us understand, there is no such thing as a ghost. If there were, then a controlled experiment could be devised to demonstrate that fact. Well, we conduct such experiments in the brain all the time. If the brain is alive, then there is a certain kind of complex physical disturbance in the electromagnetic field. If this is the entity we are after, then it isn't a ghost after all. It is perfectly natural. The baby which Gilbert Ryle dumped out crying when he emptied the bath. Look, I don't know, just as no one does, what fundamental physics underlie or enable subjectivity. Furthermore, there is more to physics, including quantum physics, that we still do not understand. I recognize that above the atomic level, everything which interacts physically is a matter of gravitation and electromagnetics, so the door is open to a permissive kind of panpsychism that I am highly skeptical of. It mustn't be that electromagnetism is to subjectivity, as mass is to gravity. With the temporally integrated causality landscape, I endeavored to describe the physical arrangement that would be logically necessary for a united conscious mind with a point of view upon content. In using causality, I either wisely or naively kept agnostic about the physical mechanism of causation. I remain agnostic. In any case, the physics of the brain amount collectively to an invisible structure. 
I call it the TICL. Call it a ghost if you want. I'm not bothered. 